So we're, sometimes we're given the impression that we're squatters relative to the ancient church and that we don't have any relationship to it, we don't have any claim on it. Uh, and and I, so I, I want to respond to that. It's also uh, thought by many people that whatever they did in the ancient church must be right by virtue of the fact that it was done in the ancient church. I, I also think that's a pretty significant mistake uh, because the, the ancient church did a number of, of things or people in the ancient church uh, did a number of things that are just not uh, correct, true, or helpful. Uh, so just because uh, something is old doesn't, ma doesn't make it true. Right? Just because something is old doesn't make it true. Now, we do emphasize the antiquity of the Christian faith, and rightly so. Uh, the Christian faith is an ancient faith, and the faith that we confess uh, is uh, deeply related to that ancient Christian faith. So one of the reasons why we stress that is that I, uh, I think you should know, and I, uh, and I think all of our ministers want you to know, that our faith didn't just drop out of the sky in the 16th century. We're not a bunch of rebellious teenagers who told mom and dad to drop dead. Right? We are ecumenical Christians. Uh, so that our worship service, uh, for the most part, can be traced, with, with certain exceptions, we'll come to that, um, to the very earliest Christian worship services. Whereas what takes place in a Roman mass or an Eastern Orthodox service would be unrecognizable to the second century church. That's a fact. I know that for a fact because I've done that research. Uh, that most of what takes place in a Roman mass uh, is traceable to the seventh century and beyond. And, and that's also true for much of what, what takes place in an Eastern Orthodox service. So they will tell you, we are the, the most ancient, continuous church, blah, blah, blah. That's simply not true. Uh, that they are, the Eastern church, churches are seventh century churches and in many ways influenced by much later uh, practices that developed. The Roman communion is a medieval church. In some ways, the Roman communion did not really fully, truly come into existence until the 16th century. Um, so the mass, what Rome does in the mass, for example, much of that is very late. Uh, uh, so you're thinking, yeah, but... Rome has seven sacraments, and that was the ancient practice of the church, right? Who's thinking that? I know somebody's thinking that. You're not going to raise your hands because you know what I'm going to do. Mm. Yo, good for you. But, yeah, but you've been told. You've been told that, haven't you? Uh, you've heard that. You've had that impression. Again, that goes back to the uh, rebellious teenager story. Uh, it's not true. In the, as late as the uh, 9th century, there's a famous argument between two um, Saxon monks. They were in France. They were arguing about the Lord's Supper. And the one thing on which they both agreed is that there were only two, sac two sacraments. <coughs> Sorry. There are uh, only... Um, uh, the earliest example or the earliest... Um, point at which we, we know with certainty that, that the Western Church began to adopt seven sacraments is in the 13th century, 1274. 1215 you could point to a little bit, 1274, but, but then you have to look at the, at the 14th century, but it's really not finalized until the 16th century, the whole business of adding five sacraments. So just to give you some, some perspective, we're not, so we're not just making stuff up. 
uh, in the Reformed churches. Uh, what we're doing really is uh, a lot of it uh, quite ancient. And, uh, uh, but, as I say, antiquity doesn't create truth or, or authority because uh, error is old too. So, uh, in terms of keeping it in perspective, the second thing we have to say is that the fathers were human. Uh, the, the fathers were not, the church fathers were not demigods who dropped out of the sky with special messages from the Lord. Uh, they were um, ordinary men, and uh, so we could say the fathers and the mothers of the church in the second and third, fourth, fifth centuries were or, mostly ordinary people who did the best they could in sometimes very difficult circumstances. Some of them are fairly extraordinary people, but a lot of the stories that, that came to surround the, the lives of the saints, um, which are called hagiographies, right? Those hagiographies are late and they're mythological. Uh, I can show you, for example, in the martyrdom of Polycarp, which describes the death of Polycarp in the second century, where, Scott, where uh, scribes and other people added material to try to juice up the narrative and to make Polycarp looked more heroic and more Christ-like than he was. So this, the core of the story is true, but, it's, uh, the, but things were added to it to try to make it look uh, special. And uh, because the Word of God is our baseline, uh, we have the liberty to say, you know what, this is wrong. We know from Scripture these kinds of things didn't happen. Uh, doves did not fly out of Polycarp's side. Right? So there, there are uh, silly things that, that were added in the fathers. Um, third thing I'd say is that, uh, and I hear this all the time, the, the ancient church did, said, believed, practiced X. Anybody who tells you the ancient church did, said, believed, practiced X probably doesn't know what they're talking about. There are very few things about which that can be said, the ancient church. We, we talk about the, the first five centuries of the church as if it were one thing because we don't know anything about it and, and because we've been told the ancient church said, did, practice this, this, and this. Now, is that true sometimes? Yes, it is true sometimes that the ancient church. Um, but we have to be very cautious about talking about the ancient church. And, and there are reasons for that. For, for one thing, there were uh, multiple uh, cultures in the ancient church, right? There are Roman cultures, Greek cultures, Syrian cultures, just to name three. And I didn't even get to North African, which is Roman in a sense, but also different in, in some senses. Uh, there were multiple languages spoken, right? Greek, Latin, and Syriac. Uh, the, the, the ancient church covers 500 years, right? So think about the last 500 years of the West. Now, it's been a time of of tremendous upheaval and change and revolution. But to, say, to talk about the Western church over the last 500 years, or the Western civilization, really, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the Enlightenment? Are you talking about the revolutionary period? Are you, are you talking about the industrial period? Are you talking about the Re Reformation, uh, post-industrial, post-Enlightenment? What are we talking about? There's just so many variables. Well, the same thing is true of the first 500 years of the church. There are lots of variables. So we want to be very cautious about talking about the ancient church. And there are multiple centers. There's big differences between Jerusalem and Carthage, for example. Big differences between Jerusalem and Carthage. When, for example, um, the, 
Uh, one of, uh, did, did you talk about Pelagius? Yeah. Right? Yeah, you, okay. You, uh, so one of Pelagius' co-workers uh, was a guy named Colestius. Uh, in fact, if you know um, the Council of Ephesus, Council of Ephesus in 431, it condemns the Coelestians. The Coelestians. So the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431 condemned the Coelestians. Well, the Coelestius was a colleague of uh, Pelagius. And when uh, Pelagius uh, uh, went to North Africa, Coelestius went to Jerusalem. And he spoke Latin, they spoke Greek, and they had trouble communicating, and he made it difficult in some ways to communicate. And some people, uh, the guys who were pressing charges in one instance, who were supposed to be there to to actually bring the case against him, weren't able to be there, they were prevented. And the, and the church in Jerusalem said, ah, this is a Western problem. You guys speak Latin. We don't know what this is. We don't understand. Uh, you guys deal with it. Well, in Carthage, they knew exactly what uh, Pelagius and Coelestius were saying, and they weren't having any of it, and they prosecuted uh, the case, and they condemned it repeatedly. So in Jerusalem, which is amazing, right, the center, this is where the church came from, Jerusalem, but when the case of Pelagianism came to Jerusalem, the, the church in Jerusalem just sort of threw up their hands and said, we don't really know what this is. This is a, uh, this is a Western problem. Well, no, the gospel's not just a Western problem. Right? But it, it tells you that already uh, in the 4th in the and 5th century that the, uh, the, the church in Jerusalem was theologically weak. The church in Jerusalem was theologically weak. It just was. That's a fact. Uh, so um, uh, so uh, Carthage was relatively better on soteriology. The church in Constantinople um, was probably more intra- was not very interested in salvation. Alexandria was full of nuts. Uh, to try to explain what Alexandria is like, I always tell my students it's like Berkeley. Um, whatever, you know, Berkeley is just full of weirdos. My students from Berkeley tell me that that there's a fellow who, uh, they call him the naked man. He rides, he goes around naked and rides a bicycle naked through town. Um, That's just weird, right? Where I come from, that's against the law, uh, public nudity, and that gets you arrested. I think it's probably against the law in Berkeley, but apparently they have no law in Berkeley. So it's just, the whole town is full of Weirdos, I think, from what, what just re, re, judging from the news, I'm sure there are lots of normal people, but I mean, there's a lot of weirdos. It's it's a university town, which is, right? Open-minded. <laughs> yeah, open-minded. Okay, yes, yes, <laughs> open-minded. But a naked man on a bicycle—that's that transgresses. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe not so open-minded, right? Uh, the home of the free speech movement, unless you say something with which they disagree, and then people come and hit you on the head. So I'm old enough to remember the free speech movement. Um, I was young, but I, re- I remember. Um, so uh, Alexandria is that way. I actually had a student one time who was from Alexandria, and I had to apologize for all the mean things that I, I mean, I just had to tell the story of the, of the church in Alexandria and all these weird theologians that arose in Alexandria. And it just kept coming up and again and again. And I said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm, this is not a deliberate assault on, on your hometown. It just is the way it was. Um, 
So there's a lot of diversity. And then the Roman church has a, has a somewhat different character itself. And then you have competition between these centers, right? The, the, there comes to be a senior pastor in, uh, in Jerusalem, a senior pastor in Carthage, Constantinople, Alexandria, and, and Rome. And they're competing for authority and for leadership in the ancient church. So we'll come back and talk about uh, what that is. So, all right, so let's not be... Um, um, Let's not be romantic about the ancient church. That's not in your outline. Uh, we want to be realistic about the ancient church. So that's the first thing we want to do. We want, we, want to, we want to keep it in perspective. We don't want to be romantic. We don't want to think that things were magical and all was good and right and everybody agreed because that's just not the case. All wasn't good, all wasn't right, and everybody didn't agree. There were lots of disagreements in the ancient church, and, the, and in many ways, the ancient church was not that much different from the way things are now. I mean, the, the, who knows what the, the first big theological error that the ancient church had to face, and I think it's on your outline, was the, was the anthro, anthropomorphite, that's supposed to be an R, anthropomorphite heresy. The anthropomorphites said, the anthropomorphites said that when Scripture says God has eyes, ears, legs, hands, nose, right? In, in Hebrew, to get angry is to is for your nose to get hot. So when God is said to get angry, his nose gets hot. Um, uh, they said, well, that that's really true. That's literally true. We don't we abuse the word literally now. We, when we say literally, we tend to mean it's really. What do we mean? I'm really excited about this or something, but we, we, to say literally mean that it actually is, is true. They, that's what they thought. They, so they said God had, acu- had, had assumed human form. That's what anthropomorphite means. He'd assumed human form. And the early church said, that's wrong. That's a heresy. You can't say that, right? But I mean, what a silly, what a, what a silly heresy to think that God really literally has eyes. He literally really has a, a, a finger, that, that with a, a literal finger, he wrote the, the law on the tablets, and, and um, with his literal right arm, he saved his... Right? Those are all figures of speech, right? You say, well, that's, yeah, Clark, that's, you're right, that is silly. Except there are evangelicals today saying the same thing. There are evangelicals today. Clark Pinnock, who uh, you know, we trusted his theology in his heart was better than, than the theology of his mouth, but the theology of his mouth was terrible when he died. And he wrote a book called The Most Moved Mover in which he said in a footnote that, you know, the Mormons might be right. They probably have a point that God really does have a body. Right? And that was only, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago he wrote that book. And that's, that's called the anthropomorphite heresy. So in some ways things never change and the, the weird stuff that we have to deal with now is not all that different from the weird stuff we had to deal with then. All right. So keep it in perspective. What's the second thing we ought to do with the ancient church? Well, you can see from the outline, uh, we ought to learn from it. Ooh, I like this. It actually works. The ones at school don't work anymore. I can't get the board clean. Um, right? We need to learn from it. Um, and and there's, uh, there are good things and bad things to learn. Uh, and so I thought I would hit five topics where we can learn, what we should learn from the ancient church. And the first uh, topic is on scripture. The, uh, 
among the Orthodox, and, and I, when I say Orthodox, I mean lowercase o, right? Lowercase o. I'm not talking about the Greek Orthodox Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church or tradition. I, I just mean those who actually believe the, the historic Christian faith, right? Those who accepted what they called the rule of faith. I made reference to that during the service. The rule of faith. In the as early as the 150s, 60s, and 70s, you can find leading theologians, and I think of particularly of Irenaeus in the 170s, writing about the rule of faith. The, the Latin, if you care, is the regula fidei. And the rule of faith um, was, a, was essentially a summary of the Christian faith. And we know what it was because Irenaeus repeats it for us regularly. And that rule of faith is basically what we know as the Apostles' Creed. So the core of the Apostles' Creed is already set by the 150s, 60s, and 70s. And by the middle of the 4th century, um, the, the, the whole creed is basically set. There's, there's one difference. Uh, some churches are saying descended, and some churches are simply saying buried. Um, they were using, in other words, some were saying, in the 340s, um, descended meant buried, and buried meant buried. And eventually, not long after that, descended came to come after buried. But that was the only other major change that happened to the Apostles' Creed. So, um, so this rule of faith is, is very early on. And, uh, um, and the Orthodox, who accepted the rule of faith, all accepted the scriptures as, as the canon, the rule uh, of the Christian faith. Uh, none of our fathers talk about the church forming the canon. Uh, this is a, a kind of a big point. All your Roman friends, relatives, colleagues, co-workers, neighbors, they're all, and, and, and you may think, you may have been given to think, and, and you may have been told, and you may have evangelical friends who think this, that at some point, in some place, at some time, in some meeting, the church got together and picked out the books of the canon of Scripture. They picked out these and they, and they excluded those. That never happened. There's not a shred of evidence that there was ever any such meeting. There's not a shred of evidence that there was ever any such meeting or that such a thing happened at any such meeting. There's one council that's proposed from the 360s we're not even sure that council actually met, and, the, and then one of the canons that's attributed to that council, uh, the one that everybody relies on, is very dubious on textual, critical, historical grounds. So, I mean, that's a very thin basis on which to, to base the notion that the church gathered at some time and some place. You'd think if the church gathered and chose the books, there'd be a pretty clear record of that. There wouldn't be any ambiguity about that. We know when the Council of Nicaea met, we know what the, the Council of Nicaea decided. We have clear records of that. Why, why don't we have a clear record of this council where we chose the books of Scripture? And yet everybody thinks that's what happened. It, that's not what happened. What happened is the church received books gradually over time and recognized, yeah, this book has apostolic authority. This book has been imposed on us by the, by the apostles. This book has the marks of canonicity. This book was clearly given by the Holy Spirit. And if you think, well, that's kind of dicey. How, how do you know? How can you tell between the one and the other? The ones that are given by the Spirit and the ones that aren't. Because there were lots of books floating around in the second century. Well, you just have to read them. 
And if you read the books, you'll see for yourself, this one's clearly very different from the other. Remember Sesame Street? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things are kind of the same. Can you guess which one is not like the other? Before? I don't know. I finished my song. Did I, I think I, did I come close? It's, it's been a long, long time. Yeah. All right. Well, that's kind of what the early church did. They read these crazy books that the people were writing and attributing to the apostles. Some of them were written by Gnostics. And, I tell you, and you can tell, it's, it's, and it's not a trick. It's not like you have to be highly trained to figure these things out. Because in the beginning of a Gnostic book, a Gnostic book they always tell you, right? Gnostic starts with a G, it's a trick. The Gnostics always tell you, here is the secret teaching of our Lord, or whatever. They tell you right up front, I got a secret teaching, and this is what it is. You know right away, this guy's a Gnostic. It's not a secret. In other words, it's not like you have to really pour over it to figure out which are the Gnostic books or which are not. In the Gnostic books, Jesus is the bad guy, Satan is the good guy. It's, I mean, the whole world's upside down, and it's easy to tell. In one of my favorite Gnostic book is... Um, the Gnostic infancy gospel of Thomas. There are, two go- there are two Thomases. One's the Gnostic gospel of Thomas, and that's the quintessential Gnostic book. Everything's upside down. Jesus is the bad guy. Satan is the good guy. It's just crazy. Uh, but the, the infancy gospel is a lot of fun because Jesus appears in that as this cosmic little brat. And he's playing, you know, he, he, uh, he has a tutor, and the tutor says, uh, you know, uh, say your letters. And he starts to say, and, and our Lord says, uh, uh, I will tell you the difference between, alpha, you know, I will say my letters when you can tell me the difference between alpha and beta. Or, you know, he gives him a test that he can't. And when the teacher can't pass the test, this little Jesus figure makes, he's, a, he's a, just a child, like five years old, makes him disappear. And he makes all his playmates disappear. If they irritate him, he makes them disappear. And eventually, mom, a bunch of parents gang up and they go to see Mary and Joseph and they say, your kid made our kid disappear. And then the Jesus, this little cosmic brat, makes the kids reappear. And Joseph says, now, now, make your tutor come back. You quit doing that. It's like bewitched, you know, she twinkles her nose. You know. right? It's just easy to tell. This is silly. Right? Read the Gospel of Luke and read Thomas. They're, you, they're just completely contrary to each other. You can also tell by the materials they used. We tended to write uh, books. They tended to use scrolls. Um, so this isn't, that, this isn't actually that complicated. And the early church did struggle over some of the books, but by and large, by 150, all the books were pretty well uh, in order and understood as, the way that we have them. By 150. Now, Hebrews was in doubt. In the, uh, in the West, they said, well, Paul wrote Hebrews, so we don't, we're not worried about it. In the East, they said, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. We don't know what to do with this. And when the, in the East, they came to decide... Um, that it was, no, I think it was the other way around. But whenever they decided it was Paul, then they said, well, okay, Hebrews is in. And, uh, and there was a question about the Revelation. Again, not surprisingly, it's a complicated book. And uh, some question about uh, maybe Jude or Second Peter. Uh, I mean, of course there are questions. Right? The, the process was, uh, was messy. Uh, there were discussions. Not everybody had access to all the books. Most churches just had one book. If you had any books, they had one book. So it took time for everybody to, right? There's no internet, communication's difficult. You might send a letter to another church and it may get there, it may not get there. You might not ever know. The, the, uh, 
the courier with a letter could get arrested, could be killed, be robbed. So it, everything took a long time. And, uh, uh, but, but they all recognize Scripture as having intrinsic authority. That's the point. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what would happen if we found, uh, like, uh, Third Corinthians? Uh, because the truth is, we, have, uh, we either have Second and Fourth or First and Third, because there were probably four letters. So what happens if we found one of those? That would be interesting, but it wouldn't be Scripture. Uh, just because the Apostle Paul wrote something doesn't mean it's Scripture. It has to have been inspired by the Holy Spirit and imposed on the church by the Apostles. Uh, second and third, or first and, and, and you know, second and fourth and first and third, which are whatever, right? The ones that were missing, uh, we don't know that those were inspired by the Spirit and imposed on the church by the apostles as canon. That's why I say there, there have to be marks of canonicity. So that's a great question. Um, uh, so if we found the Apostle Paul's laundry list, as one of my profs said, that would be interesting. I personally hope that none of that ever turns up because you know people will turn it into a, uh, an idol, it'll go in a box, and people will start making pilgrimages, right? You, you don't want any of that. And the Apostle Paul's, if they find a laundry list and they can attribute it to Paul, right? There's going to be the first church of the holy laundry list, and you're going to have to wash your, your clothes just the way Paul... It's like, oh, Lord, help us. So... It'll be a disaster. So pray that we never find any of that stuff. We have what God intended us to have. And, and the early church understood that, and they, they reverenced Scripture. And they received it as authoritative. They received it as true. Uh, it's amazing how often they talk about Scripture as infallible. Right? There were critics of Scripture early on, and against those critics, we said, the, the very same kinds of questions we, that we faced in the 19th century, our fathers, uh, the fathers of the church, defended Scripture against some of those very same questions. Jesus was a, a bastard child of a Roman soldier named pa uh, Pantera, right? Uh, because the word for uh, panther and the, and the word for virgin are similar. And one of the critics, of the early critics of the church said, see, it was just a soldier and it wasn't the Holy Spirit and, and, and so forth. And we had to defend our, our faith in, in the third century, in the fourth century, in much the same way that we have to defend it today. Uh, they regarded it as the rule of faith. Um, and, and, uh, and yet we, we need to learn from the church how to interpret it and how not to interpret it. How to interpret it and how not to interpret it. How not to interpret it is the way Origen did it. Now, Origen started with divine authorship, and that's true, but he ignored human authorship. He admitted that, the human, that there were human authors. He just didn't care what they wrote. He didn't care for their part in the writing of Scripture. He didn't care when a text was written, to whom it was written. I mean, he admitted it was all true. It just didn't interest him. So when it came, for example, to Noah, he was a, one of the reasons why uh, Origen did what he did was that he was defending the faith. And so uh, he, he would argue with critics of the faith, and he would say, you've missed the point, because the critics would say, well, how many animals were on the ark, and how did they get all those animals on an ark, and it doesn't make any sense, and, and Origen said, I'm not going to argue with you about that, that's dumb, anybody can figure that out, I want to talk to you about the, the, the significance of the ark, and he started looking for special significance, so then eventually the people who followed Origen would say, you know, as Ambrose did, you know, Jesus stood in a boat, well, why did he stand in a boat? Well, we would say because he ran out of space. 
and he needed some place to stand so he could teach the people. Well, Ambrose said, no, he stood in the, in the boat because the boat symbolizes the church, right? And he stood in the boat to show the importance of the visible church, and particularly the Roman church, right? So you, you, you begin to arbitrarily assign significance to various acts. Uh, and the, the technical word for that, or one word for that, is uh, allegorizing. There are actually, you know, I probably don't want to do this now, but there were th three different figurative senses that they found in Scripture. Allegory was one of them. If you ever have an argument with a dispensationalist, they will say, you're an allegorizer. Well, that's not really true, and they're not using the word correctly. Um, we are recognizing that, that there are types and shadows in Scripture. That's not allegorizing. That's what the New Testament does. Um, but Origen was a real allegorizer, and, and so he sort of arbitrarily assigned significance to things, and typically it was all about your soul ascending up into heaven, is typically what happened. Or, uh, this means this, and therefore you better be good. That was the other thing that happened, right? So th there are things that we want to learn not to do, and uh, so uh, when a preacher says, what are, the Davids in, what are the Goliaths in your life? You probably heard that example a few billion times. We've got to come up with a better example, but, but I, we keep hammering that because people keep doing it. Um, I hear people doing that kind of stuff all the time. Right? They learn that from origin. And th by the way, the same dispensationalists who tell us that we're, we're allegorizers, they're the ones who are asking, what are the Goliaths in your life? That's allegorizing. That's strict uh, medieval allegorizing. Origen would sit up and say, yes, that's right. What are the Goliaths in your life, baby? Okay. Um, uh, and he did so because he was deeply influenced by a form of Platonism. He didn't really care about the physical world. He was looking for the immaterial world. Um, but the, uh, one guy from whom we can learn how to interpret Scripture is John Chrysostom. Uh, Chrysostom recognized both divine and human authorship, but he was interested in what Paul meant at the time he wrote it, to whom he wrote it, right, where he wrote it. And so it, we sometimes talk as if we only learn to read text that way from the Renaissance. Well, the Renaissance was really helpful, but, but John Chrysostom was reading text that way a long time before the Renaissance. In some ways, the Renaissance was a recovery of what Chrysostom did with texts. In fact, he was so interested in when and where and who and what that, that he could be a little tedious. He went on about these things at great length. Um, he's the father of big, fat commentaries that never get to the point. Um, but at least he paid attention to Scripture. Right? We, we also um, we can learn what not to do uh, by not uh, imitating, by not imitating what the early church began to do uh, pretty early on. In the, uh, uh, one of the things the early church did was they said, you know what, the Bible is unified and the Bible is unified by law. And there's new law and old law, but it's all law. And they did that against the Marcionites and the Gnostics. They did that against the Marcionites and the Gnostics. The, the, Marcionites, and the, the Marcionites were like, I've been thinking a little bit about dispensationalism lately. They're like the dispensationalists. How many of you heard about Andy Stanley, famous evangelical, who said, we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament? The reason he said that is that people read the Old Testament and they get offended by it and they don't, uh, and they, um, 
and, they, and Andy's worried that they won't believe the Christian faith because they read things that offend them. He says, well, we'll just unhitch the Christian faith from the Old Testament. It's all true, but it's not for today, so we'll disconnect our faith from the Old Testament. Well, you can't do that. Uh, the New Testament won't let you do that. Uh, and and uh, the early church had people who wanted to unhitch the Christian faith from the Old Testament. Marcion was one. The Gnostics were another group of people, and against the Marcionites and the Gnostics, the early church, uh, Irenaeus, Justin, and others, said, no, the whole Bible is law. Uh, there's old law in the Old Testament, new law in the, in the New Testament, but it's all law. And what we lost, what did we lose by talking that way? What? Hmm? Well, we know this is all about continuity. We got lots of continuity. What are we, what are we missing? We're missing... Yeah, we're missing the distinction between law and gospel. Now, people did talk about law and gospel, but typically what they meant was old law and new law. And uh, Augustine kind of kept the law-gospel distinction that Paul made, but not very clearly, and it took us a long time to get it back. And it took Luther to, to get it back for us. So that's a way we don't want to follow the, the ancient church uh, in, in their reaction to the dualists. So when we react to Andy Stanley, we should criticize him, but we don't want to, to criticize him by getting rid of the law-gospel distinction. I, I just saw email from a reformed, a guy who graduated from reformed seminary, not, not A, I'm saying A reformed seminary, I'm not saying which one, who uh, wrote to someone else and he said, you know, we're reformed, we don't believe in this uh, law-gospel distinction. And my response is, then you aren't reformed. You don't know the Reformed faith. You, you, you haven't read the Reformed confessions very well, and you haven't read the Reformed writers very well, because they're very clear about that. That's a, that's a really important distinction. Uh, basic, really. And you see it every Lord's Day in the liturgy, right? The reading of the law and the declaration of pardon. Um, one of the biggest things that developed, one of the biggest problems that developed in the late 4th century was a turn away from the written scripture to an unwritten apostolic tradition. That really fundamentally changed the medieval church, the notion that there's an unwritten apostolic tradition. Again, there's no evidence for this. It was just made up. Um, the person who did it was Basil of Caesarea. He did it in about 370. He meant well, but he's just making things up. Um, there's no evidence for, for, and I know for a fact, I've researched this fairly carefully, and when the earlier writers talked about apostolic tradition, they were talking about the New Testament epistles. That's what they were talking about. And that's very clear in context. All right. We're, there's a lot we can learn from the ancient church about God. The ancient church taught us that God is transcendent. He's not a creature. So again, uh, he, so he doesn't have eyes and ears. That's figurative language. I mean, that's such a basic thing, but if you can get that principle that we, that we recognize that when Scripture is speaking figuratively, that it's speaking figuratively, that will save you from a lot of grief. It really will. For example, how often have you been tempted to think that in Genesis 6, when it says God repented, that he really changed his mind? Come on, think about it. Almighty God who spoke everything that is into nothing, right? Spoken into existence, suddenly is like Columbo, Right? Remember Columbo? He would uh, he'd, he'd finish an, an interview and then he'd say, "Oh yeah," and he'd turn around like he just remembered something. You got to ask her. You want to ask her a question, you know? And then that you knew when he did that, she was toast. <laughs> oh, I just remembered, you know. Is that God? 
It's like, oi, I made everything and it was going well, and now look, it's terrible. Ugh, I, I wish I'd never done it. Who knew? I'm totally surprised. Right? That's absurd. God spoke everything into existence. He's not surprised by anything. He, that's like saying he's surprised by dust. Right? God's not surprised by dust. That's what we are. From dust we were made to dust we will return. God is not shocked by what we do. He's not surprised. All right. So the, the ancient church taught us that. And they were right. All right? That was the, the orthodox faith. Um, right? the, the, they're, they're not, uh, there's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. The Old Testament God is not a demiurge. That was the language that Marcion and some of the Gnostics used. That's heresy. It's not true. The, the, the ancient church rejected that. God is not uh, God the Son, right? The Arians said that there was when the Son was not. They made the Son a creature. The Son is not a creature. He's the creator. Right? Anarche, anhologos. In the beginning was the word. And nothing came into existence except that which came into existence through the Word. The Son is the Word. The Son is the Creator. He's not a creature. Um, uh, the, the spirit fighters. So the same kinds of people who wanted to, re, to remove uh, the Son from deity or deity from the Son or make him like the Father also tried to do the same thing to the Holy Spirit. That's why the Nicene Creed uh, added at Constantinople in 381 the whole section on the Holy Spirit. So the, the church was right there. Uh, the, the ancient church through the 7th century universally agreed no images. You know who made images of God the Son? Gnostics. The Gnostics made images. The, 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 nobody even made a theoretical argument for images until the 6th century. Right? That's a universal agreement. So when I say the ancient church did not have images, that's a true statement. Um, the emperor's sister asked uh, one of the uh, bishops um, of Caesarea, the bishop of Caesarea, who was it? Uh, you know his name, Eusebius. He went to, wrote to Eusebius and said, I would like somebody to paint. I'm, now, this is the sister of the emperor. Right? Imagine getting a call from Melania Trump's office. They want something from you. You're probably going to comply with that, right? Otherwise, the FBI is going to be, Secret Service is going to be at your door. Um, and she says, I would like a painting of, of Jesus. Eusebius wrote back and said, no. No, we don't make pictures. And Eusebius' theology wasn't very good, actually. But, he, but even he knew that you don't make pictures of God the Son. Why? Because you don't make pictures of God. And just because he's human doesn't mean you get to make pictures of him. Right? That picture you make isn't his humanity. That's ecumenical ancient truth. Right out of Scripture. Right? So we can learn that from them. So when we oppose pictures, not because we're narrow-minded bigots, we're following the ancient church. Take it up with Eusebius if you've got a problem with it. Um, we, uh, we, uh, the, church, the ancient church was right that God is one in three persons. That's it. Um, he's, not, he's not one person, right? Um, we learned that from the ancient church. He's not one person. You can't say that. He's also, uh, the Trinity is not 
fundamentally, the, the, the unity is not fundamentally a unity of relationship. It's a unity of being. There's a movement called social Trinitarianism. Social Trinitarianism that says that the unity in the Trinity is not being, it's relationship. That's very persuasive today. People, that fits with the spirit of the age. It just happens to be heresy against the Holy Catholic faith. Because what happens is they redefine person and they redefine the unity and you end up with tritheism. You end up with three gods. And I say this because I used to teach the doctrine of God and I, and I studied this stuff. And these guys, basically when you say, well, what about the Athanasian Creed? And their response is, well, the Athanasian Creed doesn't say you can't say that. The Athanasian Creed doesn't, says, doesn't say you can't say a lot of things, but it certainly, if you went to the 5th century and you said, what do you think if we, talk, we redefine the unity of the Trinity as a relationship and not as being? What do you think of that? They would have said, hang on, we'll be right back. We've got to get some sticks and some, and some lighters, right? But don't move. We, we, we can fix this. They'd set you on fire for saying that. No, you can't say that. All right, so we can learn that from the ancient church. Um, on Christ, we, we learn from the ancient church that, that Christ is true man and true God, right? The docetists said, well, he only looked like a man. He wasn't actually a man. He just looked like that. That's what docetism is, right? True man and true God. By the way, one thing we can learn from the ancient church, we need to quit saying that, uh, that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God, right? Oh, here, so this is the universal don't signal, so don't say that. Why should we not say 100% God and 100% man? Sounds like it's true. Sounds kind of modern and high-tech and even scientific when we say 100%. What's the implication of saying 100%? Yes! Ding, 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 you win the prize. I wish I had something to give you. I don't... That's exact because it makes, it makes his deity finite, it makes it measurable. You can't measure, quantify the deity of God the Son. He's God the Son. In the beginning was the Word. How are you going to measure that? You don't even know what beginning means in that context. I don't know what it means. Nobody knows what it means. It means from all eternity. You can't measure that. Get out. But we mean well, and so we start using this language. I, I say this because I get this from my students all the time. 100% God, 100% man. No, quit saying that. He, he, uh, the language of the church is true man, true God. That's enough. Or even truly. You can find truly in the Athanasian. No, Cal, uh, uh, Council of Chalcedon. Definition of Chalcedon. Right? So we, we, we can learn how to talk about the Son. True man, true God. One person. Right? Jesus is not two pigs in a burlap bag. Right? That's what the Nestorians did. Now, there's a debate about whether Nestorius really did that, but there were Nestorians that did that. But he's also, right, not one nature. Eutychus tried to make it so that Jesus only had one nature. And that's a mistake. That's why uh, we don't use the language that the, our Lutheran friends use, in, with, and under. Those are good categories for other things, but they're bad categories for the supper. The deity of Christ is not, and the humanity of Christ is not in, with, and under. Right? We say he feeds us through the elements, but he's not in, with, and under. 
because he doesn't have to be, because the deity uh, is everywhere, or the humanity isn't everywhere. It doesn't have to be everywhere. All right, well, we better quit here. We're, I'm, I'm pushing the clock. We just have a, a, another minute or so. Um, you, can, you can kind of draw some inferences here. Maybe I'll be back sometime and we can talk about uh, salvation and church and sacraments. The church and sacraments stuff was going to get me into trouble anyway, so it's probably just as well. Because <laughs> that's where you go to, you quit preaching and go to meddling. But, so anyway, well, yes. They added seven, yes. They added five and came up. So what about the Eastern Church? Eastern Church followed that pattern and seven. Add, and seven too, yeah. So and and the we and the, the thing is that the particularly the Roman scholars and I think the Eastern scholars will admit Jesus only established two, but they say we're the Church and we have authority to add these, and that's where we draw the line and we say no, actually you don't. Jesus, you know, Jesus established two sacraments. That's all you need to know, right? Um, so, all right, well, well, we'll stop here. It's time for lunch. Father, uh, we're grateful for the Lord's Day and time together. Bless our studies and, uh, and our, our covenant children. Grant us rest this Lord's Day and, and strength to return to praise you this evening.